It really, it really is the degree to which, uh, like, almost any prop matters in this play. Oh, um, I know. <laughs> Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back, everybody, to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob, that's Jackson. We're delighted to have you back today. We're delighted to be today talking about one of the greats, let's say, the the big G greats. Yes, absolutely. Today we're talking about LeBlanc by Lorraine Hansberry. Um, boy, what what a play, what a powerhouse. A Oof. great, great chance to return to Hansberry, as I believe we've done a play of hers before, right? If I, if memory serves correctly. Yes, we, we have talked about Raisin in the Sun on the podcast already. Raisin in the Sun, of course, being sort of her Famous, magnum opus, yeah. her her great piece, the, the thing she is best known for. Um, but she has quite a bit of other writing out there including a lot of writing under a pseudonym, a lot of more radical writing than was widely more accepted on Broadway at the time. Um, and then we have this play, LeBlanc, which, stealing from my own context section later, Lorraine Hansberry said famously was her most important piece of writing ever. And that makes it uh, incredible fodder for discussion. And it also has made it throughout history a, a hugely controversial piece of work for a, a whole variety of reasons that come down to all kinds of cultural and social and, and racial politics that were weaving around this play during its original writing and production and still carry on that legacy of controversy and, and just really differing opinions on the piece. Um, as it's had this, it's a rarely produced play, so it's not like it has this huge body of, of people having seen it and determined for themselves. So it's, it's just, it's going to be fun to talk about because the, the, the gap in people's, uh, opinions and interpretations of this play is so wide. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and well earned, it definitely like delves into really deep Deep things, really important things, really big socioeconomic things, really big uh, uh, things, themes around uh, around racism, around classism, around all of these things. So yeah, this definitely definitely a, a play with robust reactions, appropriately so. So um, uh, excited to have the chance to talk about it. Excited also though to continue to kind of as we often do in pieces like this, where we acknowledge kind of our our perspective and where we're coming from and talking from this piece. We also would love to be a place that continues to spread connection to other places <laughs> to continue to engage in the conversation around this play. So even as even before we jump into the conversation, wanted to just say be sure to check out below in the in the description uh, down down below of this this uh, podcast and you'll find links to a variety of other conversations and sources. Um, definitely look around um, because there are a lot of great conversations about this play and and all that it is speaking to to be found and we'll be sure that you get a couple of those links below. 
Yeah, our our perspective is necessarily limited, and it comes from a you know a sort of particular vantage point. And so we want to encourage. And one of the great things about No Script the podcast is being able to have a wide variety of discussions. And we hope those discussions are happening amongst you all out there. We're going to have a discussion today because LeBlanc is an awesome play, and it's worth talking about. And whatever small degree we're able to highlight plays of uh, coming from a multitude of voices, we want to do that. But I echo what you said, Jackson, in the episode notes. Check out some other conversations that we'll share about this play as well. Another big announcement, though, relating not to this episode, but to the upcoming series of episodes. It is time again for our themed month. We are in season 12 of this show, which seems incredible. And we've done 11 other themed months of a wide variety of kinds. We like to spend four episodes every season really focusing our conversation around scripts that share something in common, which is kind of in opposition to our general view of trying to be widely different uh, episode to episode. Um, We get this chance to look at plays that share some things, including in the past, share a playwright, share an era of history, share some sort of thematic element, share uh, the fact that there's murder in them, share the last season we talked about plays that all are set around the winter holiday season. So we we do a lot of different kinds. One that we keep coming back to, though, because the the fountain is so rich is short plays we've done two installations of our mini month where we look at not full-length pieces of work but short plays and we're, we're sort of back to that because of how many great scripts there are to have conversations around. This time, however, we're not just looking at short plays. We're looking at really short plays. We will be talking about four 10-minute plays in what we're calling mini-mini-month. Mini-mini-month. Yeah, super, super mini-month. Um, <laughs> yeah, chatting about these plays. Um, exci- I'm really excited for this conversation because the, the five-minute play structure has been some of the most fun I've had directly. Um, I've had I've had deeply meaningful. I feel like I feel like the percentage of meaningful productions I've had um, are more more reside in the full length play or even one act play sort of zone. But as far as like the most fun that I've had, the most like interesting big choices that I've made as a director, the five minute play uh, is is like a great source for that. And I have a lot of fond memories of doing very short plays, both as a director and as an actor. So I'm excited to have the chance to kind of turn our lens towards that style of play for pretty much the first time on the podcast, because we don't tend to talk about that short of a play and the sort of impact that it has all that often at all. Yeah, the uh, the ten minute play format, of course, made really famous. Not maybe invented, but made famous by the Actors Theater of Louisville. And so, a lot of the ten minute plays that we'll be discussing, just to try to get a level of uh, widespreadness that there might be a chance that you have access to a copy of one of these scripts. Well, a lot of these plays will be coming out of the various play development programs that have occurred throughout history at the Actors Theater of Louisville. Um, Ten-minute plays are beautiful for their simplicity, their impact, their completion of a single action, the way that they twist expectations. There'll be uh, a lot of time for us to discuss a very short number of pages. I think it'll it'll be really, really different. It should be a lot of fun. And of course, I will uh, bridge the gap to Jackson's next section of the podcast. If you're a patron of the show, you already know the themed month. This is not a surprise or an announcement to you because you have that benefit. 
It's true. And if you are not a patron of the show, just think you missed out on that for a whole month or whatever it's been. <laughs> no, thank you. It has not been a month. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a couple weeks for sure. A little bit of advance notice. Um, <laughs> but yes, thank you all to the pay- to all of you patrons who are patrons of the show and are over at patreon.com slash podcast. You all are awesome. This show could not exist without you. We love getting to have these conversations, talk about these scripts, talk about themed months and things like that. And y'all at Patreon make it possible for us. Um, if you're looking for a way to help out the show, if you're liking what you're hearing, if you've tuned in for a couple episodes or if you're just jumping in and looking for a way to kind of get involved a little bit more patreon.com slash no script podcast is the way to go you can find us over there we've got a number of different things including early access to the scripts that we're doing a number of different tiers of patronship that you can explore over there um and we'd love to hang out with you over there and kind of cultivate that community and uh and your connection to that community over there so thank you once again to all of our patrons and if you are looking for a way to help out the show get involved in the no script community a little bit more you can head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. We'll see you over there. And now back to the script. All right, here we go. Okay. The, the context of LeBlanc is complicated. It's rooted in the politics of America. It's rooted in one of the most famous playwrights in America ever, Lorraine Hansberry. And so it's necessarily hard to tell. But what I want to say to start out with is that the story of LeBlanc coming into being is, to me, part of the play in a a really crucial way, in a way in which the context for other plays is not always a part of the story in such a way. Um, How it happened, so the story goes as I understand it, and I'm certainly not a Lorraine Hansberry historian, but this is what I gather, is that uh, Lorraine Hansberry had been interested throughout a lot of her life, and you see this in a lot lot of her work, I don't think this is a surprise to anybody that knows anything about Lorraine Hansberry, had been very interested in Africa, in African independence movements. Um, She had been taking, prior to the creation of this play, sort of a year-long seminar on African culture and history and had written some research research papers, and so was interested in what was getting towards the later part of her career in writing a play set in Africa. This is the only play that she had ever wrote set in Africa. But those themes of African countries claiming independence against colonialism, those are, of course, present throughout her body of work. And if the only thing you know is Raisin in the Sun, then that it, you know it from Raisin in the Sun, in which characters parade on in traditional African dress in which one of the characters, an immigrant from Africa, you know, claims, supports, vocally uh, uh, advocates for African freedom. Imagine that on Broadway in like the 50s. I mean, we're talking about shocking stuff from what somebody who, who, you know, who goes on to become a household name in America. And so she's she's interested. She's doing this research. She's part of this in this this uh, experience, and she starts to think about writing this play set in Africa, and starts to stretch uh, to set in place the sort of bones. She has this idea of a of a uh, uh, someone who had come from an African country and had been living in Europe, returning to their home country for their father's funeral. This sort of sketchy idea begins to be set in place, and then Lorraine Hansberry sees another play, a play by. A French playwright named Jean Genet, uh, who he wrote a play called uh, Le Negre, or The Blacks, basically. Um, and this play 
was it, it, it is a complicated play because while it has this incredibly sort of simplistic paternalistic view of Africa, really was not set out to be a play that enforced white superiority over uh, black people or anything like that. In some ways, it's a fairly progressive play for its time. But it did have this view of Africans as this sort of exotic outsider, even as the, the, the playwright was not really intending to paint a negative view of African people or, or superior view or anything like that. Nonetheless, Lorraine Hansberry comes away from seeing this play and says, this play does not at all fairly or, or realistically or humanistically portray African people. And so her idea for LeBlanc gets much more crystallized and you can actually see the title of LeBlanc, which is strange if you know the play or have read the play because the title is, of course, French, but the play is about British colonizers in Africa. It really has nothing to do with French or French people at all. Um, but the, the title comes from this being a response to Jean Genet's play. She starts writing it sometime around 1960, so is the tale told by her partner. And um, it's about the same time there she sees this play and starts sort of writing it in more, more specific. She goes working on this play for many, many, many years. In 1963, you get the first public version of any part of the script, which was a, a performance, a sort of workshop on what basically amounts to Act 1, Scene 3 of LeBlanc, which is an incredibly powerful scene. Um, I'm sure we'll get to our conversations about d different parts of the play as we go, so I won't, I won't say that now. But this was staged at the Actor Studio Writers Workshop. Um, and, and as Lorraine Hanbury's partner recounts, uh, he says that he was told that this ends up being one of the most extraordinary, famous sessions of this Writers Workshop in its history for the power of this play, for, for the voice in this play. She spends years working on it because she still feels, even at that point, that this this is not the idea in its final form, that the play needs quite a bit more work to work. Um, in fact, as the story is told, she takes the play, she takes her typewriter, she takes journals, she takes all of the pieces of writing that she's doing around this play with her in and out of the hospital as her health begins to decline near the end of her life. Um, of course, Lorraine Hansberry dies then in the middle of the 60s, very, very early in 1965. Famously, only about a month later, Malcolm X is assassinated. A couple of years go by, and Lorraine Hansberry's partner, Robert Nirmoff, he puts together uh, all of the various drafts of the scripts, the scenes, all the stuff that Lorraine Hansberry has of this play, he sort of weaves it together. He does a little bit of extra writing around what he claims are very specific notes from her about how this play was going to go. And then he takes it to Broadway and mounts a posthumous uh, debut on Broadway in 1970 at the Long Anchor Theater. The play gets... Uh, let's call them mixed reviews. So much so that in the version of the play that I have access to, there is a long essay by Robert Nemiroff after the play in which he goes through in detail 
I, I would describe it as bafflement. I don't know that he would describe it that way, but it's sort of bafflement at how widely varied the reviews of the script are to the point where he'll have one passage from one reviewer, which will say something to the effect of the characters in this play are sketches at best, stereotypes at worst. I'm not reading. I'm sort of summarizing. They're, they're, they're not fully fleshed out. They're not very interesting people. They're not very human. And then he'll quote a different reviewer on the very next page. who will say, these are the most interesting human characters I've ever seen on stage in all my life. Lorraine Hansberry's genius shines through every word. So there's this huge gulf in the critical response to the play. Now, interestingly, uh, the, the huge gulf is sort of part of what keeps it alive. This interest in how differently people see it. Um, Robert Nimroff in this essay describes how for a play that's not a musical, especially a drama that's not a musical, i.e. not a comedy, uh, the New York Times getting a bad review from the New York Times is a death knell. Uh, and that's still to some degree true today. And and this play got a bad review from the reviewer of the New York Times. But then interestingly, like a month later, the New York Times reviewer published a sort of follow-up in which he said something to the effect of, now I know I didn't like it, but there sure are a lot of people out there who seem to like it. And for what it's worth, I hope it keeps running on Broadway because it seems like it's a really important play. So there's this push and pull throughout American politics and 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 uh, theater response, theater criticism about this script. It, so that kind of keeps it alive tenuously on Broadway for a while. Eventually, however, the taxi strike is what ends up kind of closing it down. That Broadway production featured the great James Earl Jones in the central role of Djembe. Um, it was nominated for two Tonys. James Earl Jones goes on to win a Drama Desk Award for it. And then, as I said earlier, it's kind of a rarely produced piece, so I'll just highlight a couple of places where this show has gone on to be, including the most famous revival. But there's not a lot of productions of this script. In part, it's just incredibly complicated to produce, and it, as is true of Lorraine Hansberry's a lot of her work. It's a little long. Um, the 2007 Stanford Summer Theater did a revival, um, and then the the most famous revival was 2016 at the National Theater. Um, the, they actually did some rewriting and editing of the script because it is, of course, in some ways, it is an unfinished play. Um, and that's, again, the critical response varies widely is to the point of being like, this play really needs a lot of work. It's totally unfinished. Clearly, she never did it. And then you get a bunch of people are like, this is her best work ever. It's a perfectly complete play and is untouchable. So it, hugely, huge gap in that understanding. So National Theater 2016 does it. They actually filmed that production. And then during COVID, they streamed it only for like a week. And as far as I can tell, it's not available on their National Theater at Home platform to watch. So they've, they've put it kind of back under wraps after revealing it. And so actually a lot of the reviews of the play are from during COVID as theater reviews were struggling to find what to write about, they reviewed this production of LeBlanc from 2016. 2017, a company called Rogue Machine uh, produced, produced it at the Met in Los Angeles. That run got extended by a long while due to the incredible rave reviews and audience response. Um, educational theater tends to do it a while, places like Sacramento State in 2018. Um, and then what I think is a really cool production, kind of an interesting found space sort of deal uh, in Philadelphia this past fall of 2023 by a company called Egopo Classic Theater. Um, I've looked up their 
mission statement, and they're kind of interested in re-envisioning what they call the classics and also including more voices in that uh, classic canon. So, I, I mean, this this play, for who Loran Hansberry is, for what it talks about, its context is part of its story and its life. Um, and that's at least a little taste of it. Yeah, yeah. The, I definitely recommend getting this particular version of the script that we both got because it has, like, so much in it. <laughs> um, it's uh, uh, LeBlanc and the Collected Last Plays um, uh, of Lorraine Hansberry. It's a great book. It has lots of great context. So if you're looking, this is another of those instances where, like, if you're looking for more context than we're giving you necessarily, it's a great book. 10 out of 10. Would recommend. Um I'm going to give you a little bit of synopsis on this uh, this particular script. We're going to be flying by on it because we're 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 uh, there's there's lots to get into. Excited to get into all of the the uh, the the details of the script, but I'm just going to give you a brief context to start with. This play takes place in the fictional uh, but still very real and and truthful nation of uh, Zatembe. Um, this this uh, nation is uh, sort of a fictional nation that uh, Lorraine Hasbury has chosen to write about um, uh, and and kind of set the play in for us to engage the themes that she's she's bringing out and um, the the it's kind of a stranger comes to town and then a bunch of familiar people come to town as well. It's an interesting sort of structure in that way. It's set in the 1970s or maybe the late 60s, um, at least initially. I think she was writing it for for now when she wrote it. Um, so uh, the, the, the play is about this... Uh, this town, this small uh, town, and uh, the, the kind of uh, stranger who comes to town is Morris. Morris comes to town. He's this uh, journalist coming to write a story about, about this particular mission that has been planted here and, and the various peoples around it. So more, uh, the, the, the mission is like a Protestant mission, um, and uh, he's there to kind of interview people and write a piece, maybe even write a book, um, and, 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 uh, and kind of get the story on what's going on here. We meet a number of people who are at the mission. One of the first people we meet are uh, Doctor Doctor Marta, um, and then uh, she she's she's kind of uh, the uh, one of the one of the main doctors who is kind of uh, facilitating care in the area. We meet meet Doctor Willie uh, DeCoven, um, and uh, he, he's facilitating care as well. We continue to meet uh, more characters. Begin to stop by. Also, we meet Madame Nielsen, who is the wife of Mister Nielsen, and Mister Nielsen is the person who runs the mission. He's the person person who kind of planted it with Madame Nielsen, um, and uh, they've been there for the longest, a very long time, 20 years or something like that. Um, longer, I think, I, now that I say that, I think it's like 40 years that they've been there. <laughs> um, so uh, he's there to kind of interview them specifically, but notably, Mr. Nielsen is not there. Mr. Nielsen has left, um, as uh, as the characters that he meets say he often does, um, uh, but uh, he's kind of gone across the river to kind of travel in the region and do his, his missionary work um, throughout the region there. Um, and they're not sure when he's com coming back, but he'll be back soon. So uh, Morris goes about preparing his piece and interviewing various people, um, trying to get as much out of them as he can. Um, and uh, one of the people who talks with a bunch is Madame Nielsen. Um, so that's that's kind of going on at the mission. Um, uh, 
also returning to town is um, one of the people who uh, is from this this place. Um, uh, Chembe returns to town um, and he meets up with his half brother, who is Eric. More on that later in our conversation. Um, but uh, and uh, as he returns, uh, Eric, Eric is there and he kind of catches up on what's going on with Eric. He's a little bit like tipsy slash drinking when he arrives. So he's trying to figure out why his, his kind of younger brother, Eric is, is this way. Um, but then, uh, his older brother, Abios returns to town as well. And they, it starts to come out that they're returning back because their father, um, who is also named Abios, um, has just died. And so they're kind of returning to pay respects to him. Um, and they've all been pretty far afield. Uh, Chembe is, uh, has kind of had a, he left town and began to uh, kind of work his way through, through or, or out of town and then eventually like traveled quite broadly and has uh, gotten quite a bit of European education and lives in London now, married someone from London and is now like a far afield returning home. Um, while Avios has uh, been uh, sort of uh, a little bit more, uh, far afield religiously. Um, he, uh, he is, uh, closer in region, but, uh, as he reveals kind of slowly and uh, he tries to hide for a little while, um, he is kind of, uh, he, he has become very close to being a priest in, uh, the Catholic church in the, in the nation of, uh, Zatambe. So you have these brothers kind of colliding and coming back to town for the first time. And these brothers are all pretty integrally tied to the mission. Um, their, their father worked, friendly with uh, the mission for a long time until he couldn't anymore, as we find out later in, in the play, but they grew up at the mission. And so Chembe goes to the mission and uh, greet, greets Madame Nielsen. Um, and there's this uh, kind of connection between them. Um, and eventually Morris begins to interview Chembe as well. And he wants to kind of get his side of the story. And he kind of leans into that. Um, the last character that emerges as sort of a, uh, 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 a nettle in the side of of uh, almost all of these characters, almost universally, um, is uh, Major George Rice. And uh, Major George Rice is in charge of the kind of regiment in the area. He's in charge of, of the uh, sort of quote-unquote law and order. And uh, he shows up at the mission and kind of inserts himself into a lot of conversations. He's trying to control things. Um, but he also brings the news that there's been some reports of violence going on. Um, that uh, white families are uh, being killed. And as he is the white uh, law and order person, uh, that's what he's talking about. And so he's he's kind of locking things down and trying to get to the bottom of what's going on. Um, the other character of note that we've met pretty much right away at the first scene who greets Morris originally is Peter. And Peter is kind of, he helps around the, the mission quite a bit. Um, and uh, he uh, is kind of closely connected into Eric and Abios and Chembe's family. Um, more on him later, though. Um, the, the end of the first act um, is one of, I think, three or four uh, kind of debates that happen. Uh, these, the, there's these big debates in this play between Chembe and Morris that are kind of disguised as earnest conversations, but turn into interviews slash debates. Um, and uh, the two of them begin to talk quite a bit about this uh, tension, this, this, this racial tension that is felt. I forgot to say Morris is American, uh, white American. Chembe is, is uh, black and native to uh, Zatembe, and so they have this um, 
conversation with each other that is uh, based in a lot of philosophy, a lot of socioeconomic structure, a lot of like naming oppression. And Morris plays the part of like this sort of like, you know, woke for 1970s white person trying to display that he is woke um, and uh, and trying to get to the bottom of it, of of this stuff. And uh, Chembe is kind of illuminating (laughs) his his ruse for him, as well as like showing him a lot more of what's going on. So there's a number of those back and forth that that sort of ends the first act. You um, you also uh, kind of have this this uh, presence of drums that cues a lot of actions. The end of the first act ends with these drums emerging again, Chembe hearing them and reacting um, to this sort of um, uh, this maybe spirit, maybe vision, maybe ghost, maybe something um, uh, of this woman who uh, appears to him. She appears in the prologue as well and at the ending of the play um, with this kind of spirit presence calling him to the drums and to what is happening at the drums, which we find out in act two was a meeting of the uh, council of the town. Um, Because there's more to these rumors of violence, there is in fact an uprising beginning um, in, in, in the neighborhood and and it all has to do with uh, the there's there's a individual named Amos Kamalo who is a statesman who's coming back to the nation. He's been away for a long time, but he's trying to come back to try to negotiate power back to the people of Zatembe, um, even as the kind of occupying oppressors are resistant to what's going on. So there's 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 more and more talks of violence emerging, and what eventually happens is. Chembe is invited into that group. Um, Peter, who I've talked about before, um, uh, kind of comes and asks him to join. Uh, his he discovers that his fa- Chembe discovers that his father Abios um, was an integral member. In fact, started this sort of resistance. Um, we find out later in the play that Abios tried to like do uh, uh, ha- have a route through some. Uh, parliamentary options, brought it to uh, Dr. Nielsen all these years ago, and Dr. Nielsen sort of like squashed it, got rid of it quickly. Um, and so that was the that was the last time that uh, uh, Chembe's father ever went to the mission. Um, and so you, for the rest of Act Two, to, to sum up what is a very uh, intricate struggle, Chembe uh, tries to navigate which way he's going to go on this issue, whether he's going to go home to London or stay here and try to help in this movement. Um, All of that is woven in with the difficulty of his uh, older brother, Abios, being a part of the Catholic Church and wanting to be a part of the kind of state of Zetembe, which is trying to uh, stop this violence in whatever way possible. Um, And so uh, you have their two combating worldviews, all the while he and Morris are combating worldviews, all the while we learn more about Eric and some of his past and how he is in fact the child of Major George Rice and their mother um, uh, and and the way that the mission kind of covered that up. All of these things start to come to light. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nerd out about how we get slow reveals all throughout this play because it really is awesome. But to sum it all up to the very end, we have this... Uh, uh, illumination that happens where uh, Abios finds out that Peter is the one under or behind all of the uh, kind of rebellion in the area. And there's this moment where Chembe has to decide whether he's going to stop Abios and essentially have to kill him to to stop him from going to uh, the major to report this. And he can't. He doesn't. He lets him go. 
And so Abios goes and reports Peter. The major, of course, shows up with force and kills Peter um, in front of Chembe and in front of Abios, in front of the whole mission. Um, and uh, what then follows is this slow realization by Chembe that he can't not stay here. Again, very slow, very drawn out, complicated character beats for him, all mixed into his conversations with Morris and Madame Nielsen. The kind of last revelation that we get in that same scene is that uh, uh, Mr. Nielsen or Dr. Nielsen is never coming back because he was one of the uh, one of the people attacked and killed. Um, and so uh, the 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 whole mission kind of goes into mourning. One by one, people start to leave. Eventually, it's just Madame Nielsen left kind of mourning uh, her husband there. And this final scene plays out between Chembe and Madame Nielsen, where she says, your country needs you. We need you here. We're this nation that has kind of become my my nation needs you to help it. And he makes the choice to say, stay. Abios shows up and tries to say, uh, we mourn, we mourn your, your husband, etc." And then Chembe emerges, um, kind of wearing ceremonial clothing and reverses what he, the mercy that he uh, allowed earlier on in the play kills Abios for his betrayal and, uh, and kind of kicks off, um, the uh, uprising, which, by the way, is not the up uprising because there has already been major price has already kind of unleashed the dogs. There's helicopters flying over for the last like three scenes of the play of the play. Um, it's clear that there's been a military response to the killing of Dr. Nielsen. And so uh, uh, Chembe decides to stay and be a part of leading the resistance to that uh, response. So. Um, uh, it ends with one, one more emergence of this, this woman, this sort of like, uh, warrior spirit of, 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 uh, Zetembe that shows up. And, uh, that's, 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 that's my, my, my flyby attempt at a synopsis of this play. Um, excited to kind of get into some of the intricate moments of it as well. Boy. Yeah. There's just, it, it's such a brilliant piece of writing and it's so moving even to read the way that Lorraine Hansberry has managed to put real stakes, real things that are motivating this characters into, or maybe behind is a better word, these really weighty conversations about sort of the nature of our relationships with each other. I mean, those reviews out there that are negative and that feel like the play is unfinished and is sort of a skeleton call it a little bit didactic. That character spent a lot of the play talking about these weighty philosophical ideas. Um, and, and to them, I think the response that I give is, but the, the, the weighty philosophicals that, are, that they're debating are brought to concrete reality in the play, that the things that they're saying to each other matter intensely. The the Act One, Scene Three, which was again that first scene that was performed at the Actors Studio Workshop in New York to such great acclaim, is the first scene between Morris, the reporter from America, and Chembe, and it is it is I think a masterfully crafted interaction as Morris tries to show essentially I'm not one of those white race. I really do care about what's going on here. I really want to get to know you. And Chembe shows over and over the ways in which their relationship is more and more and more complicated by the world around them. There's a great, I want to read just a couple of lines to show a way that she does that. Um, Charlie, who is, is, is Morris, he and he's trying to get Jembe to sit down and have a drink, have a conversation, sort of an on-the-record conversation in advance of the article or maybe the book someday. He says, I'm sure. How about that drink? Jembe says, I think you heard there is a curfew here for natives. 
Charlie says, I don't think either one of us cares one hell of a lot about that curfew. Besides, you are indoors technically. They're on this veranda, this sort of covered porch, right? And Chembe says, men here die on account of such technicalities. That kind of powerful interactions between characters who are sometimes trying to understand each other and sometimes just trying to be heard in some way is what defines this play. And some of the scenes are just breathtaking confrontations. Yeah, yeah. But, but then, so so both breathtaking, like like really deep, um, uh, a critique of of each other and and attempts to connect. Also full of these like um, a delightful noticings uh, that that keep happening. Like like Chembe over and over, especially the initial moments, despite his probably uh correct assessment of of Charlie Morris that that he's he's sort of uh, doesn't doesn't have the whole picture and doesn't know that he doesn't have the whole picture he's kind of won over by the like abrasive americanness of him <laughs> and his ability to kind of like continue brazenly having this conversation anyway um uh and and uh the the two of them have this like really interesting uh conflict conflict-based uh way to get to know each other um uh and 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 it kind of continues to lead to more and more connection i don't feel like really any of the scenes uh end in a true sort of like warm moment between them um and yet there is this like respect that builds between them um uh where 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 to the very end at the very end their sort of last uh interaction is one that is laced with respect um but it's just interesting that 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 they arrive there by so much so much uh confrontation which is just a great way to show this debate between them throughout the whole thing yeah and 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 the combat is not it it Charlie Morris says over and over, the reporter says over and over, basically, we're on the same side. We're on the same. This sort of is repeated mantra throughout. You know, I, I want to see this as I'm sort of speaking on behalf of Morris, I guess. I, I want to see Africa uplifted, too. I'm with you. Right. And Chembe shows him over and over again that no matter what you mean by that, it is very hard for that to be true. It is very hard for that to be reality. And that is what this play does so powerfully is present the incredible complication that surrounds these issues. Now, we're talking back when the play is written in the 60s and first performed in the 70s. Race relations, of course, are in a very different place than they're in now. But the play still has so much of the power of in, in just being brazen about the complexity. I, I, fe- I feel like in this play, there is never an easy answer given, not one time in the whole script. And that's very difficult to accomplish because what it means is that a lot of this play is very unsatisfying. It does not offer you the thing that the like the sports movie about integrating black and white players onto the same team offers you at the end. You know, right. you just don't get that from this play. It is, I mean, in in that way that Lorraine Hansberry, that keen eye that she has, she just gives you scene after scene of look at all of this. Look at it again. You, there's no easy way to escape this. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, no, uh, uncomplicated way, way out or way to resolve each of the characters, the three sort of characters who come back to town or come to town for the first time. So you got Charlie Morris, the reporter, um, you have a Chembe and you have, uh, a Bios. All of them are returning to town with, or getting to town with assumptions, um, you, you have, uh, uh, Charlie arriving with this, this assumption that he's going to kind of, uh, have, have a bunch of interactions with people, get a great story and maybe get to champion a cause that, that he sort of believes in. Um, you have Chembe returning to town and, and, uh, wanting to mourn his father certainly, but also wanting, I think, to connect to, uh, his, his life back here. Um, and like the first scene or the first, uh, uh, night that he is back, um, he goes to the funeral for his father and sort of dresses, uh, appropriately for, for, um, for this funeral in sort of like, uh, uh, Af African traditional attire, um, to go to it. And he, wants to lean into that. Well, he discovers that there's more going on and, and his assumption about what uh, returning to that might be is different when it's played out in, in light of the, the, the rebellion that's going on as well. You have, uh, as well, Abios returns to town in his sort of like, robed in his Catholicism, trying to kind of bring uh, an option of change through uh, sort of uh, uh, getting into the state. Um, and he, he sees a world in which he might be named a bishop of, of this diocese in some, in some world soon. And all the work that they're doing in parliamentary circles to try to get more and more people from Zatembe into the parliament, he sees this sort of like long, slow change method. And, and his assumptions about how that's going to be received are necessarily, um, are, are, don't go the way that he was planning to. So there's all of these uh, assumptions that people have are brought to light slowly through a process of, of sometimes really interesting conversation, other times really painful choices um, that, that, that slowly reveal that, well, perhaps what we assumed what we were getting into when we came back here is not in fact going to be the case. For sure. Right. Yeah. I think a hundred percent. And it, all of those different sort of ideas and, and objectives and, and backstories and, and sort of weights that the characters bring. I mean, one, one of the things that's sort of how the story is structured is that you have all these people sort of coming back to this place for this funeral. Um, or in Morris' case, it's not before the funeral. It ends up being a sort of a coincidence that he's there when this is happening. So all these people are drawn together at this little mission. And and in a similar way, if, if for those of you out there that are more familiar with Raisin in the Sun, to the way that the characters in Raisin in the Sun are a really sort of diverse batch of political, social, libera liberation, all, all these different sort of viewpoints on society— these characters share a little bit of that too. You have these sort of differing outlooks on colonialism in Africa or or on race relations and it's each character does in some way sort of represent a diverse viewpoint on that. Um but it it what what ends up I want to read a quote here from the introduction to this book because I think it really characterizes what she does so well. Um, this is a quote from Julius Lester who wrote the introduction. Julius Lester, an incredible black writer in his own right, um, and he's describing LeBlanc and he's describing how um, 
Lorraine Hansberry was so gifted at taking these social, political, economic, theoretical ideas and attaching real human meaning to them. And so he says, it's a masterful play. He's talking about LeBlanc. It is a masterful play, an almost pure distillation of Lorraine Hansberry's personal political philosophy. My God, how we need her today. She knew that politics was not ideology, but caring. Politics is that quality of becoming more and more human, of persuading, cajoling, begging, and loving others to get them to go with you on that journey to be human, and defending yourself against those who seek to prevent that journey. That caring human lens is, I mean, it's what makes Walter in A Raisin in the Sun such a sympathetic figure, right? He talks about how he sees his future stretched out in front of him and sees an empty space. It's it's so masterfully brought to bear with these characters who what, what they bring to the table in a lot of the scenes is differing political social philosophies. And they put them in competition with each other. But it's not like it's a philosophical dialogue like the old textbooks you might have read in your college philosophy class. Because they're real fleshed out humans that care about things that are hurt by the real conditions of the things that they're arguing for or or put into competition with. And it, it it's what makes this sort of play of pulling together this sort of diverse group of folks and sort of seeing how you can rearrange them. It's what makes it so powerful and moving and and um, suspenseful is is that there's real things, terrible things and great things happening to these characters in each of these scenes in and amidst of the debates and the dialogue. Yeah, yeah. There's there's so so many of the characters do witness that happening and try and try to grapple with the consequences of it. I feel like uh, Madame Nielsen is one of the big characters that that. Um, discussion happens for yes um because she has the the perspective of 40 years here um and and we slowly learn more and more all that she's seen and how her um may, maybe some of her perspective has shifted in the time that she's here she's the one who in the end encourages chembe to stay and fight for zatembe so 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 she is the character on which a lot of this pivots i think incredible, fascinating, awesome character for so many reasons. Um, early in the play, Chembe, when he's first asked to take sides in this conflict, says that there are people that have seen too much to take sides. And now I'm, I'm borrowing again from Julius Lester. I don't pretend that I've, I've invented this idea. This is an idea that he flushes out in that essay. That that Madame Nelson is another of those people. And it's so brilliantly uh, embodied or made into an image in the fact that Madame Nelson is is blind. She spends the whole yeah. play needing to be led around from one place to another. And so when you get her and Jembe sort of at the morning site for Reverend Nilsson, and they have this finally this sort of frank conversation where she also seems to be somebody that has seen too much to take sides and has an incredible it seems like true admiration and respect for her husband and and what he wanted and what he was hoping while being really fair about his flaws. I mean, one of the stories that's uncovered, there's so many, as you say, slow reveals throughout the play. The reveal of what's happened in the past is a major dramatic device. You learn that uh, the thing that stopped Jembe's father from coming to the mission and that probably turned him into the leader of this group that is trying to violently... Uh, rebel for their freedom 
um, is that they they would bring these sort of petitions that they were going to take to the government, and they'd talk about them with Reverend Nielsen. And sometimes he'd help them, and sometimes he'd advise them. But when the, what they brought to him was this idea that they should have uh, Native Africans serving on the quote-unquote representative governments for this part of Africa. And he told them that they should not take it on, that they should go back home, that this is not something they should bring to the government. And that is what initially caused the rift. And then later, very late in the play, she is pretty frank about the fact that he did not want Chembe's mother to live or for his half-brother Eric to live because it represented this kind of moral wrong in his eyes. And so even though there were human lives at stake, the sort of his view of the sort of sin of the world outweighed that. And so she she is that scene too much, right? She sees both sides. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, and I agree. The the, the great irony is, of course, she doesn't. She's she's blind. She's um, blind. Yeah. So so yeah, it's, it's it's great. It's great, great, great imagery there. Um, uh, but yeah, just to just to be sure that we touch on those those slow reveals. There's so many of those that you get just piece by piece, slowly piecing together, and each time you get a revelation of of something new you that it's these big wow moments i think of the revelations cer- certainly the revelation of eric's story the revelation that peter who we've uh, seen throughout the whole play is is kind of uh, a different character than we thought that he was that he's leading this sort of council um uh, you have this great use of the the word uh, buana which essentially means uh lord or boss or or something along those lines is so, sort of a term of respect that is reversed throughout the play uh that that the peter says quite often when shembe throws it out it has it has a different sort of meaning and tone to it um uh so so yeah there's there's all of these moments where you're slowly piecing together what's going on the 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 woman slash warrior slash spirit as well that that kind of emerges throughout the play both to chembe and to the audience is another that like kind of slow piecing together what's going on what the true meaning of the drums are is slowly revealed there's just so many of these these things to discover as you sit with this with these characters for longer and who Eric's father is, of course, throughout mm. the play. Uh, I, I want to bring our attention, too, to the just incredible use of imagery throughout the play. There is this kind of spiritual representative figure of the woman who opens the play and, and throughout acts as this sort of encouragement of Jembe to take up the spear. The spear becomes a physical representation of the violence that he may be asked to do in fighting for the freedom of his nation. Um, and he rejects the spear all throughout the play that the woman is trying to get him to take. And then in that incredible confrontation with his brother, when he's trying to stop him from turning Peter in. It is an actual spear that he has held in his hands and his brother puts the spear up to his breast and says, do it then. Take up by and so this the metaphorical spear throughout the play becomes a physical, tangible, literal item of violence that he's not just gonna have to use against anybody, but his own brother is gonna be the first thing. I mean, it crafting that kind of physical symbolism is is it's just only possible if you have that level of genius. I mean, it's it's incredible. It really it really is the degree to which like almost any prop matters in this play. Oh, um, I know <laughs> any any negotiation, any time, and then also like the any any time uh, a character shows up, there is an attempt to sort of understand something about them. Even even Major Major Rice, who we 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 come down fully against. <laughs> 
by the end of the play. Yeah. I, even even from like the playwright's perspective, the scene where he shows up knowing that Peter um, is who Peter is is just uh, again like a, just a a, a a scene that is based on knowledge um, and, and tension based on that knowledge. And it's just another example of not any way, easy way out, right? Because the this this I mean the 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 white settlers refer to the group as the terrorists. We will call them the rebels or the freedom fighters or the whatever. It, it's not that they have been uh, murdering military soldiers, for example, or trying to claim resources. They probably all, are also doing those things. But uh, the major like turning point at the beginning of the play that starts the action towards militarism is that they murdered a family children and all. And so Major Rice has, you know, has been given this like, you have to stop this group from murdering families. And so while he's not a very sympathetic character, there's not an easy way out to go, well, you know, you shouldn't have to take those measures. I mean, it's a mil it's a military base. What are you gonna do? They're fighting. He's they're murdering families. And so he's given the the, the job, stop them from murdering families. And and that is not in any way defense of him or his actions, but just a way to show how Lorraine Hansberry murkies the waters. She makes everything as hard and complicated for these characters to figure their way out of and for us to figure our way into understanding where our sense of the world is supposed to align. And it's such a great the 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 use of the three brothers to do to to say what you just described. <laughs> um, the the kind it's like to say out loud what you just described. Eric, there's there's this there's this perfect scene in the second in the second act where Eric is going to war. Um, he's been recruited. He's going. He's got the spear. He's got the shield. He's going to war. Chembe shows up, takes the spear from him, and says, "You're not going to war." Um, and uh, there's there's going to be another way. I hate this as much as you do, but you're not going to war. Um, and then uh, Abios shows up and says, ah, "You're not going to war," and I'm going to go tell Major Price about all this stuff that I now know. So Chembe has to like be the middle person. <laughs> <laughs> um, and try to decide which way we're going to go in this. And, and this, this is the scene where he has the spear and all that. So it's just this perfect scene of having Eric trying to push for war, um, uh, uh, Abios trying to push for some sort of state-based solution, slow, not war option, um, and Chembe in the middle trying to, to keep both of them from doing what they want to do, find another way, having to decide in the end. The three brothers are just masterfully uh, uh, crafted characters for their particular alignments. And it, again, it's just taking something and complicating it with human reality. So you have a brother who represents the sort of like, uh, you know, I, I'm now going to be a Catholic priest. I've embraced the education and the, 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 the medical and all this stuff that the settlers, the colonists have brought to my country. You have that brother, but he stayed in Africa the whole time because because by contrast, you have Chembe, who is, uh, he comes home and there's this, their, their, their first interaction. I'm not doing a great job of describing this. So let me just concretize it with their first interaction. Their, their first interaction as brothers, they have this argument about the sort of rituals, the ceremonial rituals of the funeral. Chembe, who is coming from Europe, he claims not to believe any of this. He's been living in Europe and America, but he comes home for the funeral and he dresses up in African religious ceremonial garb for the funeral. And this is where the first confrontation with his brother happens. His brother is dressed as a, as a Catholic priest in training with a cross. And so you have these two different different 
strong, incredibly powerful stage images, right? One brother dressed in African ceremonial religious garb, one brother dressed in a Catholic cassock and 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 cross, right? And and crucifix. And so they're they're symbols, right? Oh, this is just didactic. It's just putting these symbols and ideas in competition with each other. So say the negative reviews. But then you look at the brothers a little bit. One brother is coming from Europe and America, literally left Africa to go live in Europe and America. Yeah. He's the one dressed in African religious ceremonial garb. One brother says, I stayed. I'm more African than you. I've been here. I didn't run off to Europe, but he's the one dressed in the Catholic cassock and crucifix. So you just trouble the water a little bit more. And then their younger brother, the one that wants to pick up the spear and fight off the colonists, is half white. Uh, no easy answers. D Lorraine Hansberry has a gift for taking something that looks concrete and understandable and then just troubling the waters. Yeah. Just just muddying it. Just throwing in complications and and beautiful human mystery to it all. Yeah. Yeah, not only then not only troubling the waters but then also describing all of the like the, the, the reefs and shoals underneath the water as well that has become troubled. Um, it just feels like any time that you're like, oh, yeah, this is complicated. Oh, it's way more complicated than that. Way more. Because, <laughs> yeah. like, for example, the, the, the one of the other motifs that is bandied about in the, the Morris and Chembe conversations, which are they're probably like the 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 picture perfect part of the play or that's not really what I mean, but they're like the. They're kind of the centerpiece of the play to me, are these confrontations between Morris and Chembe. They're repetitious, the thing that they, they happen over and yes. over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing that they constantly come back to is uh, Morris saying, well, you just hate white people. And it's like, ah, I mean, that's not that's not a totally ununderstandable point of view if right. you're Chembe. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but Chembe over and over says, no, 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 you don't get it. <laughs> right. I don't even care enough to hate you. You want me to feel these strong emotions because then you can understand me and categorize me. So, again, it's just taking these sort of uh, – this is a, a commonly held sort of belief or view or stereotype or whatever. And Lorraine Hansberry pulls back the curtain and says, this is just what you think about a group of people you have know nothing about. Yep. There's there's so many reveals like that. There's so many other uh, uh, like uh, there's there's other characters in this that we could focus on. Um, uh, and uh, but uh, this is alas the uh, nearing the end, really the end of our time for this particular uh, show. What what uh, what an impactful show. Uh, I I saw the uh, kind of trailers for the what which is all that remain of the National Theaters at home uh, <laughs> edition of this play. What a what an impactful show. Hope I get to see it someday both in person wouldn't mind also finding where that national theater one is if anyone has the info on yeah. that what a cool show yeah. to see i i agree i because this play is so rarely produced it, it's going to be hard for you to find a live production out there near you if you do let us know i may travel for you yeah. so i mean seriously it so what i want to really encourage you to do maybe even more than other episodes read this play it's at your it's at your local library. It's Lorraine Hansberry. She's an American great. You can get it at your library. Uh, I got it at my library. Maybe you can't. It's on Amazon. You can find it. Get a copy. 
read this play. It's so powerful. And the characters in this play say things that need to be said from all sides. And that's Lorraine Hansberry's gift. She's she's a friend to everyone and hater of no one. Everybody gets their fair shake in this play. And the stuff that's said needs to be said. And so, I, just, I mean, I echo Julius Lester in saying, like, we, boy, we miss a voice like Lorraine Hansberry to put on paper and then eventually on stage, although after the end of her life, these incredibly powerful things to say, you can't miss it. Read this play. Really, really, please read this play. Yeah, definitely. Check it out. We'll we'll link to whatever we can below here for you to find things about this play. And when you do, we'd love to keep chatting about it. We'd love to keep extending the conversation out to all of you. You can find us on all the social medias at No Script Podcast is the username across them, or at least on the ones that we're on. Um, you can find us on Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about LeBlanc with you. We'll be back next week at the beginning of our themed month, mini, mini month for 10 minute plays coming your way. Till then, if you've liked this episode or any of our other episodes, please pass this on to your family, your friends, anybody you know that likes theater, conversations about writing, hearing two nerds just rave like lunatics about how good a play is. (laughs) That's us. Send them our way. They can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, Podbean, all the places where you find your podcasts. You can also like the Facebook page and a link to the new episode appears every Monday when we publish. Until next week when we're back with our theme month. I'm Jackson and that's Jacob. Thanks for listening to No Script, the podcast. Mm-hmm.